it isn't the easiest thing in the world to listen to what you know you are. Sometimes you just have to like, I don't know, take your time and come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. Or sometimes it helps if somebody else is like, you know, you already are that thing. You're the one who doesn't think you are. Welcome back to Let It Out. This week, an artist I love is on the podcast. You're about to hear the first half of a nice and long two-hour conversation I recorded with visual artist Kemi Quillen. We recorded over Zoom just a couple weeks ago. Kemi from her home in Brooklyn. I was here in LA. And we began talking about mornings and coffee and routines And the day that we recorded this, I was at the coffee shop talking to some friends in the morning and I realized I had to run to make it back to get ready for this interview. And when they asked me who I was interviewing that day, I turned around and yelled, my favorite painter. And then I ran off to make it home in time. And it's true. Kimmy is a painter whose work I love and her work can be seen on the walls of Good Move in Brooklyn. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know Good Move and you've heard my conversation with the founder, Jules, who's also a friend of Kimmy's. Her work's been in Elle, Domino Magazine, Uprise Art. She's presented solo shows, one called Many Moons at Chinatown Soup in 20. 19 November, which we talk about because I was there. And she did a show most recently at the Philadelphia Gallery in 2020. And she just returned from a residency in Oaxaca, Mexico. And as you'll soon hear, Kemi is incredible. We met just before I left New York and we share a bunch of mutual friends. And next week you'll hear I went to them and asked if they wanted to ask Kimmy anything. And I got a lot of really good questions, much better than the questions that I came up with. So you'll have to come back next week to hear me ask all of those. I was so excited to talk to her. I was really looking forward to this conversation and it exceeded my expectations. This week we talk about Craigslist and colors and routines and getting our coffee combination correct and being heliotropic and the highs and lows of making and releasing art and creativity. And next week we talk about a whole slew of other topics, which I'll tell you more about at the end, but thank you so much for being here. And here's part one of my conversation with visual artist, Kimmy Quillen. I follow you because we have mutual friends and and we know each other. And I went to your show in New York and through the pandemic, it was a real joy to follow a particular series you were doing, I believe related to Craigslist. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking (laughs) about? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I remember very distinctly, there was a cake that was for sale perhaps, or at least available on Craigslist. Do you remember that? Yes. That was a highlight for me. That was a real like diamond in the Craigslist mine. (laughs) 
It's so funny. How did you tell tell everyone listening a little bit about that series? <laughs> okay. Um, that's really funny because I don't think I, it wasn't like artistically intended at the moment, um, but it was kind of like a performance piece. Basically during, um, I think the end of 2020, when the weather was getting worse in New York again, and we were like heading into this godforsaken winter of COVID. So I'm a huge fan of Craigslist in general. I think it's like a, an incredible use of resources and like people connecting. And I just like celebrate all parts of Craigslist. <laughs> but I started looking on Craigslist daily because I don't, I don't binge watch things. I'm like too sensitive for it. And so I was like diving into Craigslist for like an hour every day. Um, just amusing myself with like these wild things that were being posted on there. And the one that you're speaking of is this wonderful moment where this woman who I think lived in Park Slope posted on Craigslist and said, I was given this cake to celebrate an occasion by some friends, but it's been in my house for three days. I've eaten <laughs> as much of it as possible. And I just want to pass it along to somebody else who wants cake. <laughs> And I'm reading this post and Craigslist is real time. And so like by the time that I revisited this post again, somebody had found it and she wrote an update on there that was like, you know, somebody came over and got the cake and like it's in good hands now and it found its own person. I think that's how it went. <laughs> that's incredible. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm so happy that I remembered this I this was not on my list of questions to to ask you about Craigslist, but I had completely forgotten about it. And then part of me, as I was starting to say it, I was like, "Wait, was that you?" Because yeah. <laughs> it was a wild time for all of us, yeah. where I couldn't place who it was. But I remember because I think I was also on Craigslist quite a bit because I was unexpectedly moving to LA and and starting fresh here. So I just needed everything, and I was impressed by your ability to use the software, you know, and, and it's just <laughs> hilarious. And I, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's such a, a tremendous tool. My writing teacher who has been on this podcast before, actually, she did something interesting when she was leaving New York. She sold all of her belongings as we do. And she wrote this really beautiful, poetry basically to everything she owned about leaving and it got picked up by all of these publications and like became this whole like big thing. Oh wow. <laughs> that she completely wasn't expecting and she was like I need just needed to like sell my shit and I became poetic because it's me but <laughs> yeah it's it's cool when these sorts of lovely delightful things happen on on Craigslist. Yeah. I mean that platform for some reason I think just has because it's so real, because there's no, you know, there's no barrier to posting. All you need is an email address. So whatever you need to get up there goes up there. And, and it's just out there for the public. And it's funny because like some people would post whatever and then someone else would wrap them out and be like, oh, if you click through on this table tennis lessons person, just, so you know, they're a scam. And like... <laughs> 
so much drama on there. <laughs> yeah, I've had really positive experiences with it. I, I've sold things and that's gone well. I've bought things and and that's gone well. When I left New York, I, I had bought, or it wasn't even when I left New York. It was when I left the East Village and I moved to Brooklyn. I, when I came to New York from Michigan, I ended up just taking over this room, this lease from another person who was, who was moving out. And so I bought from her, her bed and her desk and her dresser and like all of the bedroom things basically, which was great. And some of them I didn't even really want, but also she didn't want to get rid of. So I didn't even buy from her. I just inherited basically. So then when I was leaving, I had to get rid of all of them. And I put on Craigslist, like I didn't even want to sell them. I just put it free on Craigslist. And at first I was like, I think I did try to sell them and nothing, even like for $50 or whatever. And 20, whatever it was, nothing. And I was, I, I really was, you know, in true form, like planned last minute. And I actually had a flight to Europe, like the next day after <laughs> I was, it was like a whole thing. <laughs> it was really poor planning. Um, but I was just like, oh, I got to get rid of this stuff quickly. So I like quickly changed my friend, Carolina was like, just change it to free. I guarantee you people. Come. I was like, will they though? Like, I don't know if they will. Like it's 20 bucks. Like if they're not coming for this, like they're probably going to flake more if they come, if I put it on free. And I, the second I like, I was, I remember I was at her house having dinner and I shifted it to free. I was the most popular person in New York City. Yeah, <laughs> like, I had 10 billion emails yeah. and I just picked the, it became like a whole thing of like choosing a person and the people who came to get my stuff were so kind. I remember one person brought over a bunch of fruit and I unclear, like here that makes sense because there's fruit trees, but <laughs> they just like brought me a ton of fruit and yeah, I remember I like couldn't do anything with it because I was leaving the next day. But yeah, it was a po very positive experience. <laughs> I love that. That is, I had a similar experience in the free section. Um, we were getting rid of this like set of benches and I put it up for free and so many people replied. And I was just like, oh dear Lord, like this is just some benches that belong in like a, you know, like a backyard or a garden or something. And people were like, so adamant they, like they like needed it and i was like i really have to go back and order of who contacted me first or whatever but yeah people you know people need things <laughs> yeah yeah well you're listening to the craigslist podcast yes. sponsored by <laughs> open to it actually not craigslist <laughs> yeah <laughs> well this is a cool place to start actually because i did actually want to start with instagram and First of all, I didn't even say this while we were recording, but I'm so happy you're here and I'm really grateful that we're getting to do this and I'm getting to talk to you because I think you're the coolest <laughs> with Craigslist and beyond. Oh, this is sweet. I'm so glad to be here. Well, what is the word in your Instagram bio? I looked it up and according to Webster, it means turning or growing towards the light. And I love that meaning and I actually love the sound of the word. And I'd love to know, you know, why that word is there. And if you could tell us how you're moving and growing towards the light right now. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The word in my um, bio 
I actually just changed it, but it's kind of a joke. So maybe I'll change it back. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's funny. I started, now, you know, I started preparing for this in advance. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I like just changed it like yesterday. Well, I'm glad I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, I am too. <laughs> is heliotropic. Helio is the prefix for sun and tropic, I believe is growing towards. So Webster is right on as far as I understand that word to mean. Um, I am, I'm like a warm sunshine person and I'm a light person. And I was, I, I've known that word for a long time, but I, um, I kind of shrivel and wither a little bit in the New York, <laughs> February and March times. And I was feeling particularly angsty one day about not having exposure to sunshine. And I was like, fighting. I was like, I just, I'm a person who needs sun and I need lightness. And I, I just like physically need these things to be present around me. So that's why I put that on there out of my sun angst. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like that. I, and I totally know what you mean. I would always say that like January, I didn't really mind it being cold December, not at all. February, it like starts to get a little old, but March, April, when it's freezing, it's really challenging. And I, I had this, this light, it was called, I think it was called, I actually don't know what it was called, but it was this, (laughs) (laughs) this little, it looked like a vanity and I got it when I still lived in Michigan, but I, I would, it was, it's like red sort of light and I would stare at it in the mornings and it was, do you have one of those? No, my friend does though. And she loves it. She does it every morning. Yeah, I feel like it might be a good investment for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me too is like the warmth thing. I run really cold. I'm a fire sign, but I run cold and I need water. So like, I'm just trying to balance myself out, I think. But yeah, the war. So I went out to visit my sister recently who lives in Santa Barbara. And this was at the tail end of February. And we were just like having coffee outside in the morning. And the sun was you know, like kissing my skin. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like, this is better than drugs. I just feel (laughs) so like enveloped in this embryo of warmth and light. And uh, I don't know. It's one of those things too, where like you kind of forget about it until you're exposed to it again. And then you're like, it's like, you know, like taking a huge breath after you come up from the water and just being like, oh, right. Oxygen. And it was like, oh, right. Sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand. And I also run cold. (laughs) 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 I want to talk more about mornings because I heard you say that you only paint during the daytime because the sun is so important for colors and that you drink a lot of coffee, which I also do. (laughs) Is that all still true? Yeah. Definitely the first part. I still really can only paint during the daytime. Well, I guess I should say I can really only creatively paint during the daytime because the paintings that I make have different phases of creation. And so sometimes if I have a color already ready to go, I can just run with that no matter the quality of light in the room. But for mixing colors and selecting colors, I really only ever do that when the sun's out because of the trueness 
and like the full spectrum quality of sunlight because all of the bulbs and things that we use to mimic light are limited in their ability to like create the rainbow. And our eyes are so incredibly smart <laughs> at perceiving light. You know, it's what they exist purely to do. So I really only trust the daylight to tell me about what colors are really doing. And for the coffee question, this is really funny because I spent like more than a decade working in coffee shops. So people often assume that I'm drinking a lot of coffee, um, which is so relative. I think I have about 12 ounces a day at this point, And I have it in like two cups. I have like one six ounce cup and then I chill and then I have another six ounce cup. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think everyone has to find their coffee combination, you know, and I, I don't know if this was just me, but the pandemic, def it was definitely my drug of choice, Q1, Q2 of the pandemic, where I am like a one cup a day person. And I guess I don't even know the ounces. Like um, I walk and I get a coffee out most days, like a drip and that's that. And I'll like sip it. My friend Carolina always gives me a hard time about how slowly I drink it, but I know that that works for me. But every once in a while, I was living with, with people during that time. And sometimes we would make coffee at home and, or we would make coffee at home and there would just be more there. And so I would drink more and I would be jittery and I would be like, I, yeah. but I would kind of like it. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was just that high that, you know, was th with a big crash. Yep. It's, that's the thing is like, it's fun as an option, but I'm definitely becoming more aware of the like, whacked out version of me or the like, I'm feeling really productive version of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going back to colors, you talked about how in an interview I read of yours that you were inspired by the brownstones in Brooklyn. Are you still inspired color wise from your daily environments? Because when I think of your work, as you know, I before I left New York, I came to one of your shows and I, of course, love your art that I've seen around, but color just feels so connected to your painting and your, your art. So I'm curious where color inspiration is coming to you from now. I think you read you even keep a, a file of colors. Do you still do that? I, oh my God, I have... Yeah, well, I have a, a folder. I basically have a folder on every single device I own of just color theme pictures. Like all of my saves on Instagram are based on color composition. Everything that I like screenshot on my phone or pull off the internet, I just stuff it into a folder. And then when I am getting ready to approach a new body of work, then I'll just saturate my eyes with those and start working out what is the tone, where am I feeling? And I think like for me, the colors are everything. I'm almost like, not that I'm not interested in the subject, but colors provoke so many feelings and associations and like moods that 
they can kind of tell a whole story on their own. And you don't really have to do much in terms of guiding the shapes that they come out in if your colors are like telling the story loudly enough themselves. So I definitely still, I was just walking through this neighborhood in Fort Greene in Brooklyn the other day and was admiring all of the brownstones in a row with their like shades of tans and kind of like rosy browns and kind of like subtle orangey browns. I love that. I, I love these sort of earthy, but still colorful color palettes. And I've, I've worked with those for many years. A lot of times I think also like the color stories that I end up coming up with reflect something that I need to see. So over the pandemic, I was doing these like crazy saturated, like super vibrantly colored paintings of bodies. And I was just like, these are things I crave right now. Like we're in a really depressed time. I don't have contact with the people that I, you know, need. And I was like, I need bodies and I need vibrancy and I need vivid amounts of life. And so that just ended up being what I was painting. I remember those. Yeah, you paint what you want to see. I think that's really cool. It's been great as an observer of your work. I would think of your work as so warm, like warm tones, especially the show I saw before I left New York and watching your work evolve since knowing you and watching the colors that come in. And it's really cool as a observer of your art. And with that and with color being so paramount to your process, my friend Zoe has synesthesia but in a way that's a bit different from other ways I've heard of synesthesia from, I know Lord, the singer has it and, and where you, she hears things in color, I think. But the way Zoe has it is that everything is sort of in a file in her brain. Um, numbers are in numbers. Each have a color. Oh yeah. It made her very good at math and like mental math. Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible and so smart, but I'm wondering if you have any of, do you have a little bit of that, you think? I don't know. It's such a hard thing to gauge. My nephew is 11. And uh, just this last year, I learned that he is most likely uh, partially colorblind. And so I've, he lives in California, so I don't get to see him all the time. But I, the last three times that I've gotten together with him, I've noticed instances where he'll um, misname a color of something that we're talking about. And I, I mean, this is just according to me because he's just perceiving it differently, but I'm like, oh, that's so funny. He called that black and it's actually green or something like that. So I don't know necessarily, I don't know if I have like an inborn extrasensory quality, but I think that it's something that I've definitely become more attuned to as I've worked with colors more intimately for the last many years. Yeah, it's that's really interesting how we're all going to perceive each other and the world, color, places, sounds differently. You know, we we know this, you know, we know that we all have different tastes and different 
you know, it's it just, I don't know. It, it really sometimes hits me hard to think about how, per, to think about perception, I guess, and how we'll never see ourselves clearly. We'll never, we won't see each other in the same way. Um, yeah, it's like an intense thing to think about. And, and it, hearing that story about your nephew, it probably really, because it's not, it's, he'll never see it your way, but also you'll never see it his way, which is really interesting. Yeah, totally. It's funny that we have colors. Actually, there's this really gorgeous book and I am not going to remember the name of the author, but the book, and now I'm making myself forget the name of the book, but it's basically like the history of colors. Oh, did it come out recently? I think it came out a few years ago. I have something like saved. I'm going to pull it up and see if I can find it, but but go on. Because I don't think it's the same thing, but I think it's something you also might oh, like. <laughs> it's called The Secret Lives of Color. Ooh, cool. And it's by this British woman and her name is uh, Cassia St. Clair. I'm so British. And like, honestly, if you don't have time to read the book, find an interview with her because she is she is a person who is just like lit up from the inside by the idea of talking about the history of color, of pigment really. And it's fascinating. The book is obviously arranged according to the rainbow. So you're learning about like all these shades of reds and then all these shades of yellows and blues and browns and blacks. And she profiles each color and where it came up in history that people were able to either find it naturally or create it synthetically. And it's just full of like the coolest stories. She talks about, oh, this is one where like the people of Egypt who wore coal around their eyes, coal is actually like the K-O-H-L is a antibacterial substance. And so rimming their eyes with it would prevent like the sandy, deserty kind of winds from like bringing infection into their eyes. And every single page in here is just like, what? That's so crazy. Or like how women used to whiten their skin with this, it was like a lead-based white paint essentially. And it wound up like poisoning the skin of these like very well-to-do women and causing them early death, but they were like willing to die for the beauty of having this lighter skin. I just love that book. Wild. (laughs) I know. That sort of thing always blows my mind. Like the things that, I mean, this whole separate conversation, but body image wise, the things that women especially, but people have done in history that are so damaging physically for beauty standard that we still do in our own ways now. Oh, 100%. The figure of like how much money is spent on skin bleaching a year is horrifying. Like globally, it's just like, oh my God, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in the same vein, I believe diet culture is the same thing of how many billions of dollars that industry is that profits and survives on their need for repeat customers, right? Right. right. Yeah. And the manipulation that's involved in that and like creating this narrative of not being the right thing, X, Y, or Z, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, pivoting out of that back to color. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that book sounds incredible. And I, I did find the book that I was talking about, which I think you would really like. It's called, it came out at the end of last year, at the end of 2021 or in November. And it's called Color Scheme, an irreverent history of art and pop culture in color palettes. And it's by Edith Young, who's a young artist who lives in New York City. And she went to my friend Zoe's school. She went to uh, RISD. And she basically takes 40 color palettes and then writes these essays that reveal the systems of color that underpin everything we see. Whoa. So, yeah, it sounds really cool. And I don't own it. Like I said, but now that we're talking about it and I pulled it up, I really hope Zoe's not listening to this episode because I'm going to buy it for her for her birthday. I think she would really like this, but I think you would also like it. <laughs> I do. I already love the sound of that. Oh, so fascinating. Yeah. I really like being influenced color-wise by what you see, you know, on Instagram, but in your environment too of what you were saying about being in Park Slope the other day, I can picture that actually. Like there's a very distinct memory I have in my mind where I was in Park Slope, maybe for the first time, or I think this was before I even moved to New York, but I was there looking at apartments. I never lived there, but I think I, you know, when you're like moving, you just kind of look everywhere. And I, Remember the sun, that golden hour where the sun is reflecting off the buildings and they're red and like, I definitely tried taking a photo of it. I re and which is probably why I remember it because memory is so interesting that way where I remember the vision so much probably because I put, took a photo of it and probably put it on my Instagram or who knows, which is interesting that that is how I would remember. It does make me remember things more by taking a photo of it than if I hadn't. But I don't know. That's a whole, no again, a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but I really can feel that moment. And there's there's just so much beauty in New York, in cities, everywhere, in not cities, in, in our <laughs> environments, wherever yes. we are, indoors, outdoors, whatever. But I, ju I just really liked the way you described that. And it reminded me of something that I wrote down, actually, that you said in this interview from Uprise Art. And you're talking about New York, and it really made me miss it, much like you describing that scene in Park Slope from the other day. But I want to read this. And they had asked you what you love about New York. And this is what you said. I love the peeling paint and ripped paper of layers of posters. I love the graffiti mustaches on subway ads, the urban color palette, and the respite of city parks, those life-saving oasises. I love walking everywhere. I love running into friends in unlikely neighborhoods at all times of day and night. I love the physicality and the lack of comfort of grocery shopping. I love the disgusting rainbow of rust water trickling down the wall of the subway platform. I love New York's unapologetic reality. Oh, amen. It's so well written <laughs> and it's so good. And I, I haven't, I've been talking to our, our mutual friends, which is how I, how I met you, Bob and Carolina. I, I talked to them all the time and they were my neighbors in, in Greenpoint. And when I lived there and I, 
as you kind of know, you know, I, I left really unexpectedly. There was no goodbye. There was no goodbye party. There was no like moment of, of leaving the city. And I haven't been back since. And I haven't been back oh. since the pandemic. I know. I know. And reading this, I, I also haven't really missed it because it's so comfortable here. Like, like to your point of this, the, the lack of comfort of grocery shopping, like it's a lot more comfortable to grocery shop here. (laughs) One of the things I was so nervous about moving to LA was that I would never walk anywhere, but I do walk around my neighborhood all the time. And I do run, I, you know, I'm I'm really, I chose a neighborhood that I can live New York-esque where I do run into people and I do walk, I go days without using my car. And so I, I do love that, but there's no disgusting rainbow of rust water trickling down from the subway platform here. <laughs> yeah. And there's no unapologetic, there is unapologetic reality here for sure because of, I think the neighborhood I chose. Um, and there are definitely urban oases with hiking and, and that, you know, LA has in, in strides, but there's not the mustaches on subway ads and the ripped layers of posters and reading that it was just so beautifully written and an art form itself. And I just, I really, really loved it. And I don't know, maybe you can tell me when that interview was from. And I'm so curious if you still feel that way about New York and how the pandemic impacted your relationship with the city. Mm. Yeah. I definitely wrote that before the pandemic. Because when you started reading it, I was like, I remember writing something for Uprise. And I had fragments of that in my memory, but it is, it's my love poem to this wonderful, filthy place. (laughs) I feel all of that. I feel every syllable of that ode to the city. And my partner and I spent the whole pandemic here. And the funny thing about this, I don't think he's uncomfortable with me saying this because we've discussed it before, but I think we have talked about New York being kind of the third entity in our relationship because living here. So I've lived here since 2006. And that means that like basically my entire adulthood has been spent in the city. And I feel adamantly like I am in a long-term relationship with it. It's never completely on my terms. Um, (laughs) Neither of us is ever completely winning. And sometimes we need breaks from each other. And Sometimes like I roll around on the urine soaked grass and I like revel in it. And I'm just like, this is the best place on the entire planet. Um, I love it so much. It's, it's kind of like, it's powerful. You know, you're in the throes of this living like energy force here. And I do feel so strongly about the parks here. It's like, One of the things that I'm just so passionate about is the public parks because in a city where people don't have a lot of access to nature or privacy, you know, like the wildest things you have ever seen go on in the park and they're so amazing. Like they're like living things too. And over the course of the pandemic, 
I, I live a few blocks away from um, Fort Green Park, and it was it was a total lifeline and lifesaver for me being here during that time because it it was a connection to someplace living and the connection to like a small bit of space and uh, feeling like just the smallest hint of like relief. What it all came from the park. Oh, yeah, I really, I love that so much. Did you always want to live in New York? I read you're from the the Midwest. Was it something that, you know, I know growing up, you see it in the media so much, and it was something that I knew that I either wanted to live there. I always would wonder what living there was like. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin, and from age... Well, let's just say this. Before I was in eighth grade, my like goal and purpose in life was to move to New York. <laughs> like that was as much as I thought about. I was like, I deeply relate to that. That's all. Yeah, that's I same. <laughs> people are like, oh, why did you move here? And I'm like, because I wanted to live in New York. Yeah. <laughs> and sentence like there was no ulterior motive. I just had to be here. <laughs> so how did you end up there? The cool thing is my brother and sister had a similar like fascination with the city. And in, I think, 2003 or four, they're both older siblings. Um, One is eight years older and one is 12 years older. So yeah, doing like a different experience in life kind of time. And I was struggling to finish college and they were like, we're going to move to New York. And I was like, so betrayed like why would you move out there when I have two years of college left and they were like it's okay you can move here when you're done with college and I was like this is so unfair where were you going to school I went mostly to the University of Madison in Wisconsin and I was just kind of like doing everything I don't know my whole college thing was like such a funny time of trying on every single item of clothing in the store to see what fit. (laughs) So I spent like two semesters abroad and I went to one other college in the meantime. And like between transferring and doing all this other stuff, I had to take like summer school courses. And after I quote unquote graduated, my college sent me this letter in the mail and they were like, you didn't actually complete enough courses on campus to graduate from our school. And I was like, I don't think that's correct. And so I like talked with the study abroad advisor and they fixed it all up. But I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. It sounds cool to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In retrospect, it's kind of funny. But so they had moved out here in 2004 and I graduated in 2006. And this is like a very crystallized memory in my brain. My sister-in-law was visiting Wisconsin for the summer and I had just graduated and come back from, I was spending the last semester in Paris and I came back and I like went back to my job at the coffee shop and I was teaching my sister-in-law French lessons. And she was like, so what are you going to do? She had already like lived all over the world and was like a very cool person. She was like, so what are you like doing? I thought you were going to move to New York or whatever. And I was like, I am. I am going to save up enough money to move out there. And she just looked at me and she was like, honey, you're not going to save enough money to move to New York by working in a coffee shop in Wisconsin. She was like, just get your ass out there and start working out there. Great advice. Right? 
And I was like, oh my God, my head was just like, I was like, oh my God, you're so right. What am I doing? And um, I had a friend who was leaving that same summer. He was about to do an MFA um, at Amherst in Massachusetts. And he was driving his car out to the East Coast. And I was like, Justin, I was like, hey, uh, what do you think about me moving out to the East Coast with you? Like, can I pack my stuff in your car and, and drive out with you? And he was like, I don't know what kind of car he had. I'm sure it was like a Mazda something. It was so small. And we crammed all of both of our belongings into this car and <laughs> drove out to the East Coast. My sister and her husband had just gotten married and moved into like their first apartment together as a married couple. And basically I just like landed there and was like, so you guys have like a small office space in your apartment that I am about to camp on for the next three weeks. <laughs> they were just like, okay. And I was like, but I'll get an apartment. I'll get a job and blah, blah, blah. I was just it was all blind faith at that point. <laughs> That's how it has to be, I think. Yes. <laughs> it's like they say there's no good time to have a baby, right? They, I think it's the same thing for moving to New York or, or any move, really. Like moving is expensive. It's uncertain. It's jarring. And it's messy. Right. Like you're messing up your life to do this unknown thing. And I, I've done it billion times and I have all there's a lot of richness to it too but I mean that sounds very cinematic and that's really great advice from your sister-in-law because I think so many people who want to do something like not even like that but just anything that's a leap of faith waiting for the right time to do it I do this even in my life all the time now where I am excited about something or I want to like right now I have like four projects that I just haven't even moved the needle forward on it all because I'm it's not even that I'm waiting for a right time but I have this sort of illusion that there'll be more space or time and there never will be and I think anything that's big it's never gonna feel like the right time you have to just do it and it sounds like that was very cinematic and it could have been, you know, a scene from Sweet Bitter, a scene from so many coming of age, moving to New York story. I mean, I did the same thing. I, I packed up a, we rented a van, not like a moving van, just like a, I don't know why we did this because it ended up being very expensive, but um, we ended, we, and by we, it was my boyfriend at the time, but he was just moving me. Uh -huh. <laughs> he also wasn't moving, but we drove from Michigan to New York and we bought or didn't buy, we rented a minivan, like a sock. It was just a, we were renting like a big car basically to put all of my stuff in and just like an enterprise or whatever. And I didn't know that there was going to be a fee. It was expensive, but I was like, fine. And then had budgeted for that. But I didn't know there was like not only an additional fee for dropping it off in a different location, but like a tremendously like significant, like higher than the price of everything else sort of a fee, which I think now like I know as a fact, and I think everyone maybe knows that about rental cars, but it was like the first time I'd ever rented a car and I was like barely old enough to do it. Yeah. And why? <laughs> I know. I mean, I kind of get it because you're like messing up their fleet of like, 
of their inventory, but also, I mean, you, they know you don't have a choice. Right. So what are you going to oh. do? <laughs> so true. I know. This is not sponsored by Enterprise. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I'm happy that that you made it there and have had this beautiful relationship with the third yeah romantic part of your relationship it sounds very romantic it is <laughs> we're growing old together <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by a product that i've been using every day i started taking athletic greens because i wanted to have some more energy and not have to swallow so many pills and vitamins i wanted one supplement that can do a lot and actually tastes really, really great. Now I've been taking it for a couple months. My friend Dexter also takes it and he like, you know, works out and does exercise more than I do. I really, as you know, I just like walk a weird amount, but we both really like it. And I think you'll like it too. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging. I mean, gang's all there. Literally all the bases are covered there. I really, really like that. Like I said, I gave it to my friend, my friend Dexter. I've given it to other friends. I've given it to my family. The taste, you know, it's green. It's very green in color, but it tastes really good. Like you expected to not be good at all. And it is actually really good. I, I enjoy drinking it. It helps with digestion, which I really like. And, you know, I just have it in the morning when I wake up before I leave to go get coffee. And it's great to bring with you when you travel. I haven't been traveling much, but I'm about to be quite a bit this summer and, and after. And they have these really nice travel packs that I think is going to be really good for me when I'm on the go. And I think you might like it too. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one that has really high quality ingredients that your body can actually absorb. And Athletic Greens is just one small habit that has some really big benefits and your subscription actually comes with a year supply of vitamin D which is really important to get you know especially if you're not getting as much sunlight as you would if you you know were in the summer or lived in a place where you get more light on your skin vitamin D can be really really helpful something that i really love about Athletic Greens is that it supports better sleep. And that's something that I have made a goal for myself um, this month is to sleep more. And uh, you know what? I'm doing my best. And I I'll take anything that'll help with that. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes and my friend Dexter, trusted by leading health experts and you know, me. <laughs> For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry. And they've donated over 1.2 million meals. That's really cool. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the cold and flu season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash let it out. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash let it out to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Credit Karma. Maybe you're paying down some old credit card debt and a personal loan could be a helpful solution. Loans usually come with fixed monthly payments, making them a simple way to help pay off your credit cards. Plus, loans usually have lower interest rates than credit cards do, and Credit Karma can help find the best option for you. They use your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances for approval so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence to those. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free. It won't affect your credit scores and it could save you money. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Thank you, Credit Karma. Do you feel like being Midwestern has informed your personality in any way or your work in any way? Oh, yes. <laughs> How so? There's no part of me that isn't informed by growing up in the Midwest. I mean, especially because where I grew up, well, so I grew up in Western Wisconsin along the Mississippi River in for Wisconsin, a sizable town of 50,000 people. And it is a total treasure. Um, and everything, I don't know. I just had like a really, really wonderful childhood. And I lived in the same house for 18 years and had a really supportive community and all this, all this just like wonderfulness in terms of like where I come from. And that's, you know, that's the foundation. That's where my expectations come from. That is underneath all of the exterior things that I've learned to put on as a city dweller, as a New Yorker. My inherent expectations are a thousand percent from La Crosse, Wisconsin. I went to the DMV yesterday, which is always a joy, but I show up, I have this appointment. The DMV attendant checks me in and says, did you fill out a form yet? And said, no. She says, okay, here's your form. Wait for your number to be called. And I said, oh, do you have a pen I could borrow? And she says, no, but there's a machine in the back. If you have two quarters, you can buy a pen. Oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah. And I was just like, obviously, obviously there wouldn't be a bucket of pens that the DMV could just like have. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> There's a vending machine of pens? Right on. Because they know you need a $2? pen. $2? No, no, no. Just two quarters. Oh my God. Yeah. 
that should be reserved for gumballs and happy things, not necessities. Totally. So yeah, I was just like, okay, obviously. So I like saw this couple, they were filling out their forms and I went up to them and I said, you know, I'm sorry to be a pain. I was like, do you think I could borrow your pen afterwards? And they were super, super sweet. And that's like the cool part about New York is that, you know, once you get somebody's attention, everybody's prime, you know, most people are pretty nice and generous and willing to like be a human with you. But yeah, just the idea that like there wouldn't be that amenity offered to you is like the smallest. It's just like this this micro instance of like New York not being where I came from. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Were you always creative and into art as a kid? Yes. My mother would tell you. I so like when I was growing up there was a chair in our living room and it was where I would like sit and watch TV at night. But my mom was like, you never just sat down and watched TV. Like you always were, you know, like we would all be watching a movie or something. And at the end of the movie, you would be like, I quilted this blanket while you were watching a movie or like (laughs) I was always doing three other things while I was doing something else. And I just remember we didn't have like an art supply store in the town that I grew up in. It's not like a, it's just too small. We didn't have like a museum or art galleries or like a scene, but we had craft stores and I would drag her out there and I'd be like, I just need, I just need this whole thing of like, you know, whatever I was into, it would be like, I just need like five or six packages of clay that you can bake in the oven because I'm going to make beads because I'm going to sell necklaces. And I just need like everything. I tried out every single craft in the store. (laughs) Yeah. I think the more I ask people about what they were like as kids, the more I'm realizing my friends and I like, and, and then my friends having kids Mm. and being around kids, I'm realizing that like we're pretty fully baked. I mean, there's a lot of nature and nurture, I'm sure. And I'm not a parent, so I'm like totally out of my depth talking about this. But, you know, I think little you doesn't sound too far off than young you and current you. And if I think back to to myself, it's like the things I'm good at now, I was kind of always good at. And the things I'm not good at now, I was kind of always insecure. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's not – there's totally. not really that much of a variance, which I just think is interesting. But that sounds really idyllic. And I'm so happy that that was your experience and, yeah. and shaped you. I think it's one of those things, too, where, you know, if we can listen to ourselves – and pick out those red threads, then it becomes so much easier to become that version of you that you knew you were when you were growing up. So I didn't start painting. uh, And I kind of like air quote that because I have painted different things over the course of my life, but I didn't like concretely start painting until like 2015 or 2016, I think 2016, which is not that long ago. And I didn't, I didn't use the term artist to describe myself until like 
2018 or so. So it isn't the easiest thing in the world to listen to what you know you are. Sometimes you just have to like, I don't know, take your time and come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. Or sometimes it helps if somebody else is like, you know, you already are that thing. Yeah. (laughs) You're the one who doesn't think you are. That's really important. I think connection and having people see us because to our earlier point about perception, like we're never going to see ourselves clearly. And this person, Josh, a a friend of mine, he said this, I think on this podcast, but he, he has this line. I think it came from someone else, like a friend of his, or maybe he read it or a therapist. I don't know, but it was like, when you are in a depression or just like feeling low or like not feeling your best, you need to outsource how you perceive yourself to someone who cares about you basically, because however you're seeing yourself is so skewed. And I mean, you could say that about like when you're on a real high too, you know, Um, I guess, but that just like, I don't know, ride, take it unless you're, you know, certain people I can think of. But I think that that's, especially when your career is in a malleable place or when you're young or I don't know, for me, like yesterday, like I think it's, (laughs) it's really helpful to have supportive people to be like, whispering in your ear, like, make the thing, like, you are an artist, like, look at this thing that you made. And I I think that's really important and such a good, useful point that you made. My sister gave me this piece of advice many years ago, which I was calling her with some woe that I don't remember at this point. And uh, I think I was just beating myself up over something. And she was like, if you were your own friend right now and you told your like your friend told you this what would your response to them be would you be saying this type of thing to your friend no you need to like actually have the thoughts to treat yourself as you would a friend yeah that's such good advice and it relates to something that i wanted to ask you about because you've talked before about how the period after a show is the most challenging for you. And I want to know why that's the case and how you take care of yourself during those times and just hard times in general, I guess. Yeah. I was just thinking about this earlier today, actually, because I've been working on a lot of projects like for or with other people over the last many months. And so in in my inner thought process, I'm like, oh my God, I haven't made anything in five months, even though like I've definitely made things. However, they have been in collaboration with or to the idea of somebody else. And so I've been consciously waiting in this like receiving pattern since kind of like the end of February, really. Just being like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to make next. I wonder what I'm going to make next. And so I'm, I'm in the thick of this right now. And I think it's hard. Well, I know it's hard for one thing because once you finish a large project, if you have done your best and if you have given all of your energy and attention and ideas to it, 
you feel depleted. You know, you just ran a race and there needs to be some recuperation in the wake of that and reflection. And then the next part of it, or sometimes in tandem with that, is wondering where you'll manifest next. Wondering like what you need, what the world needs, what excites you and what like makes you feel irresistibly drawn towards making something. And it's kind of like waiting to fall in love. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know where you're looking. You can kind of go to the typical haunts where you have a good feeling about it, but you, you do have to like wait for it sometimes. Yeah. There's a level of faith and curiosity. Yeah. And uncertainty, which is like, you know, we both as humans dislike and also is an inevitability on what I believe so many of the best things about living are, you know? Totally. You use the word faith, and I think the sort of like shadow side of that is fear because the faith comes over and above this feeling of fear that nothing will come up next, which a lot of artists that I've talked to have mentioned, you know, you wonder if you'll ever have a good idea again, or you wonder if you'll have a better, you know, you wonder if your best work is behind you. I think artists of all walks kind of fear that. Yeah. And I think to your point about feeling depleted, that is so challenging, I can imagine. And also a good sign that you did, like you would say to an athlete, which I have no business like saying, but you left it all on the court or whatever the the phrase is, you know, because even, you know, my small example of this, but when I was writing my book, I remember my editor saying to me, I was like, oh yeah, I have like something else I could put in this, but I'm just going to save it for like my next book, which (laughs) jokes on me, there hasn't been another (laughs) one. So, um, (laughs) but she was like, put it all, put everything in here, right? Like you're never going to write another book. She's like, you, she was nice and wrong, but she was like, (laughs) um, so far I'm not going to, but (laughs) she was like, write as if you're never going to write another book. And, And she's like, I say that to all of my authors, even like people who have written a bunch of books. But I think that that's good advice because holding anything back doesn't feel good. And at the same time, I really know what you mean about feeling depleted after a big project is completed. I, my friend Linnea Sims and I talk about this all the time, even when Let It Out puts out an issue of our zine, like I both feel for a second, like elated in a, I handed in all of my homework sort of a way and it's the end of finals and I'm free. I did it like, whew. and that lasts about 10 seconds. And then I'm like, God damn, what am I getting? You know, yes. like where to, where to, because I think for people like us who have the propensity to make things, we need that creative tension and we need that discomfort because for me, it, it pools my anxiety. It gives my anxiety somewhere to go and it gives my brain a bone to hold on to. So it's not going into the like, who didn't text me back and who's mad at me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who's, you know what I mean? Right. And those like dark corners. 
or like what sort of like expensive beauty treatment do I need to like feel okay or you know (laughs) what like sort of wormhole do I need to go down and it's still a distraction like I guess ideally it would be like enlightenment right of like feeling peace which you know I meditate blah 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 but I think that's a better distraction painting than those other things (laughs) yeah I mean it's also it's like one of it's so funny. It's so complicated because I saw some hilarious, very relatable drawing on Instagram and it was of a circle. And, you know, there's a very, it was a pie chart and the very smallest possible sliver of the pie. The rest of it was things that I make that I think are awful. And then this very, very tiny sliver of the pie was things that I make that are unstoppable and the best idea in the entire world because that is kind of how making things often goes you're just like garbage 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 judging the work judging the work and then one stroke of brilliance and that's kind of all you need to go to just keep going back every day for more and I think like for me the feeling of making something is almost always attached to just riding a really intense wave of inspiration. I get excited about things so deeply and I get so impassioned by things that I would do myself justice to always just like ride that out as fully as possible to put all of the ideas in the book to like make it happen because four months from now, I'm going to be feeling passionate about something so different and not be able to make this work ever again because I'm not in the same place and I'm not in the same mindset. So when it comes up, it's so important to be ready for it, to like be prepared to do the work, to, and then also like to go through the process of completing the work, reflecting back on it, honoring it, giving it, you know, the props that it's due and then preparing to move on to the next wave. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. That piece right there, like sharing your work, I think is actually a really important part of the positive feedback loop of making things. You know, I, I think it's, you know, first you have to create space and then gather inspiration and just open your eyes to see what's around you, take in, and then collate and try things and throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And that's the period that you were telling about with that funny pie chart because so much, my friend Crystal helps me a lot with everything in my life. And and she was saying that I'm really bad at scoping. Like I will think something takes way longer than it does. And so I procrastinate and don't do it or like (laughs) what you know before we started recording when I was like I'm gonna get water and then I also was like in the time to get water I can also get a pen and do this and do that you know being a time optimist but I don't know where I was going with the scoping shit but (laughs) but the but I do think sharing and putting your work out is actually really important because that's how you and you know this but that's how you grow. Like that's how you get feedback. That's how you get praise. And then the dopamine from that, you can write a little bit to make your next thing and you can store that up for when you need it, when you're low, you know? And I think that's both of those pieces are really important. And 
that's connection, you know, <laughs> which is like what we all want. And I think I believe are, are wired as humans to, to need. And then I also think the release and the in-between, like you're saying, you're, you are depleted and just like that's that knowing that that's part of the process. And, oh, this is what I was going to say about the scoping thing. It's knowing your patterning. And it sounds like you know yourself really well. Like, you know, like, okay, I'm going to just like feel a little bit low from that and that'll be six weeks and then I'll have a new idea. Or it's kind of like after a breakup where you have your first horrific breakup and you're like so low because you don't believe that you'll ever feel that way again. It's really, the first one is really, really intense because of that. And then the next ones are easier because you have a bigger sample size. And I think it's the same thing with creative projects where you you know, like, oh, I'll probably get another idea again, turns yes. out. And <laughs> it'll be okay. And doesn't make it less hard, but it does make it more, the, the uncertainty, the fear can, can sort of lessen because you can be a bit more logical with it. And it sounds like you know your patterning really well to kind of know what you need in those situations and what what do you need how do you like i was saying like how do you care for yourself then are you extra nice to yourself like what do you do when you're feeling low in general and after a a big release and i guess you know you're kind of in that now which that totally makes sense even though you're making things you're doing it's a different process because it sounds like it's not creatively as self-directed. And I relate to that even of like when I'm, you know, I might be writing, but I'm writing copy for something that I'm getting paid to do, or, you know, I'm, I'm still working, like I'm putting out episodes of the podcast, but that doesn't feel creative. And I haven't hit all of my notes creatively. So I feel off because I know I have the capacity for more and I'm just doing the, you know, filing system of other people's requests, which is also part of it and sometimes really nice. Yeah. I mean, I think that having a few rounds of these cycles under my belt allows me to find the enjoyment in each phase of it. I know I'm going to get so high on having like this brilliant new idea. I have like, so I write down a lot. I'm a visual learner, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, so I have like notebooks and notebooks of ideas that I keep around. And like, I journal in like four different places every day. I just write things down constantly. And I'll be like 90% through this like excitement about some body of work that I am going to make next. Like the next time I have a free time, I'm going to make these 12 paintings as a series and here's the concept and here's the color thing, blah, blah, blah. And by the time that I actually have the chance to start that body of work, that's not where my interest is peaked anymore. But I still love the high of those, like, like the fresh burst of ideas is super fun. However, I need to edit myself, you know, like if I'm going to make, because I really like to tell I like to create a group of paintings at once or have like sort of an overarching theme that I'm dealing with in a group of paintings because not everybody's going to relate to one painting. But if you give them this kind of like 
world to look at. Like even when I set up my own shows and I'm standing in a room full of paintings that I made, like when I walk into that room, I'm like, oh my God, this is so powerful to see so many representations related to one theme or idea. So I really like to have that like vision of many works in my brain when I'm starting to plan things out. That was very clear. Like you describing that, I definitely experienced that coming to your show at, um, you know, in 2019. Maybe you could talk about that as like a case study and an example of that, because that was such a beautiful depiction of what you're describing from my perspective as a consumer. Yeah, I'll talk about, I loved that show so much. It's the last in-person show that I had. I'm so glad that we got to do it before everything shut down. So. That show happened at this gallery called Chinatown Soup, which is in the Lower East Side. And I will just give them a huge shout out. This gallery space is like so antithetical to what I've learned about galleries. Like they are community oriented. They host artists. They like have space for artist studios in their basement that they rent out to people that they're interested and think need like a platform or a place to go and create. They host events in their gallery like multiple times a week they do tea ceremonies in there they have tarot card readings they have a zine wall which you should totally send your zine to it's there oh good oh (laughs) because i think i was making the first volume when i think i had just finished it when i came to your show actually and they yeah they they either still have it or they did they're so they're just such like good people Yeah. So I made this body of work and it was, it is, it's a series of, I was just counting these the other day. Don't follow me. I have a really bad memory. And so like when people are like, oh, what's this one that's called this? And I'm like, can you show me a photo? Anyway, I made this series of paintings that were interpretations of the moon phases. At that time I was doing Ashtanga yoga, which is very much tied into the lunar cycle. Like you don't practice on full moons or new moons because the energy is either so high that you might hurt yourself or so low that like you should really just take it easy that day. And it's linked to our cycles, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I came up in Ashtanga. I I taught yoga for a long time and that's like the first bit that I, that I learned because my teacher, it was hers and yeah, it's such a beautiful practice to and so structured that yeah I I really I really love that yeah so while I was doing that I was getting you know the moon just started becoming this sort of like fascination to me because it's so physical like you can't really argue with it like I know people who do or don't believe in astrology or do or don't believe in x y or z but the, the moon is like literally creating ocean tides and our bodies are made of water. So like, guess what? It's a real physical thing that is happening to us due to the moon. And so as you walked around the gallery space in a clockwise circle, each of the moon's phases was represented one next to each other in this kind of like abstract lines and circles way using a similar color family. It was incredible. I'm so happy that I got to see it in, in such a such a special show that we would have never known would be your last in person for a while. 
I know. I want to have another one there this, well, we'll see. Ambition. <laughs> yeah. Soon. I love it well, so much. I hope it overlaps when I'm visiting next so I can see it. Yes. A big welcome back to New York, Katie. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I, I think so. I remember that night so fondly. We'll get to this soon. I, As I mentioned to you before we were recording, I went to some of our mutual friends and asked them to submit questions for you, which we're going to um, wrap up with, which will be really great. But as I was texting one of our mutual friends, we were talking about that night and I was like, I remember that so well. Mm. I had so much fun. And we went across the street to the fat radish yes. after yeah, and we were all there and it was just so fun. I remember eating at the, and that's one of my favorite places in New York. Ugh. And I miss it so much. And I, I remember what I was wearing. I remember Bob took a photo. I, I mean, I keep saying that, but I do feel like photos do change, shift memory. I would have remembered it for sure, but there's definitely a photo that Bob took of, of Carolina and I, and I think he posted it on my birthday or something last year. So I like, I was describing that to her and then she found it. And I looked at that picture and I was like, God, that feels like simultaneously so long ago and two seconds ago. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I remember you walking in and like officially meeting you and just you being so cool and pretty and meeting your partner. <laughs> and like, it just, yeah, it was cool because Bob and Carolina had a, had a piece of art of yours in their place. And so I had heard about you cause I was like, Oh, I love that. What is that? And that's why they invited me to your show or maybe oh. I'd met you before that. I don't know, but yeah, it, it was really, really cool. I love that. Going back to this interview that I read of yours from slightly before the pandemic, you wrote that you can't force creation, but you must constantly cultivate a positive mental environment for it to arise. I'm curious how you do that or how are you doing that lately? Oh, I love that last part of it. All right, come back next week. That was part one of my conversation with Kimmy Quillen. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next week's part two is worth coming back for. I always say this when I split up the episodes into two parts, but part two is where things really come alive. We get a little bit loopy. We forget we're recording and the conversations go to the the best places. Next week, you'll hear us talk about her process more, creating the conditions for creativity, how she incorporates chance and serendipity in her work. She talks about living a frugal life and supporting her art in New York. We get into sharing work and what she calls intentional chaos, her thoughts on the emotional roulette of social media. That's what she called it, which I couldn't agree with more and marketing art. And we talk about what's inspiring her right now, which leads to this thoughtful discussion around self-care as it relates to activism. She tells me this quote about essentially boundaries and the responsibility we have to take care of ourselves. So we're not putting others at risk of having to give more. Well, you'll just hear next week because I'm doing a terrible job explaining it, but it has stuck with me and I found it 
really useful. She gets into riding inspiration waves. And then, like I said at the beginning, I ask questions from our mutual pals, including her old roommate, my really good friend, Bob, and his girlfriend, who's also my really good friend, Carolina. They're getting married in like two seconds, which is so exciting. And her friend and my friend and friend of the show, musician Misty Boyce, asks a question, as well as Good Move founder Jules Bakshi, and so much more. Come back next week. The episode was long enough to split in two because... It was more of a conversation and I I feel like I talked a lot in, in this one. So hopefully that was cool with you. Thank you so much for being here. And to all of you who read my quite personal newsletter last week and sent messages, I, I really appreciate you and I appreciate all of you here listening. And I read some of it out loud in last week's episode. And if you've been listening to the last several episodes, I loved the one from a couple of weeks ago with Sam founder of Meals Clothing. That's my favorite one we've done this year because I just had such a great time recording that with Sam. And and last week with Maria Brito, art advisor. And then I think before Sam's episode, it was my birthday episode with Sasha. So I really loved these last several episodes and I'm so grateful that you're here. If you want to sign up for the Let It Out letter and receive the newsletter that I was mentioning, the link to do so is as always in the show notes. And if you like this episode, share it. And I hope you come back next week. And last housekeeping announcement, if you are interested or want to fill out the survey we're doing about friendship for Kayleen and I's project, we're going to look at the responses this week. So last chance to do that. If you don't know what it is, the link that explains it is in the show notes. I love you so much. Email me or send me a message on Instagram or let it out to Instagram if you want to say hi or tell me anything at all. My Instagram is my name and then let it out has one that is let it out with three T's and that turns out that's also me. I will see you next week for part two of this conversation and since we didn't get to take the deep breath at the end with the guest, I'll take one with you now. And hey, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you, I always wonder when you're listening, when we do that little bit at the end, when we take the deep breath that we let out, and if you're new here, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm wondering, do you sigh? Like, do you do it with me? I have this vision in my brain of of everyone sighing together. I picture you on the subway, letting out a sigh or in your car walking or, you know, folding laundry that we're sighing together, but, but maybe not, but let's do it together right now. Inhale, exhale, let it out. Ah. Oh, that reminds me of teaching yoga and felt nice. All right. I will talk to you next week. Love you. Thank you. Bye.